So twice upon a time there was a boy who died, La Memoria Infinita, by your boy right here. Channeling the conflict between street life and safe spaces, twice upon a time tackles the question, what does it mean to be a man in a hostile and gentrified world? Following the death of yet another young man in Little Lancet, Jeremiah, Emmanuel, and the boys must band together to survive the drugged out process of self-destruction in an uphill battle toward faith and salvation. From public brawls to barbershop debates, Carrero's vignettes approach the charged topics of violence, adultery, and nihilism through hip-hop and biblical reference, creating a carnivalesque mosaic of masculinity's causes and effects. At the novel's core, we hear the call to action. Unclasp those hands and use them, God. Yes, God. I'm talking to you, God. These words strike the core of Carrero's message in Twice Upon a Time, claiming that resentment and abandonment can be overcome through creation, knowledge of self, and the bonds of brotherhood. Wow. Do you, do you agree with that assessment and summary of the book? I think I agree with that. Um, <laughs> I feel like some of those words I sent you. Did I send you some of those words? Oh, you did send me some of those okay, words. Okay, great. So I'm like, wow, I feel like I said that about the book. Yeah, and I think that the description in a, still like doesn't do it justice. Okay. You know what I'm saying? Because I feel like the format of the book is different than what people are going to expect the book to be. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just an experience that, you know, it's a great description. I think it's accurate, but I think it's accurate once you read it. You know what I'm saying? I think you have to read it. You should buy the book, really. Okay, okay. Is, is what I'm saying. No, no, no. All right. So, yeah. Yeah, yo. So, I mean, <laughs> welcome to the old Dirty Time Capsule once again. Yeah, let's do it. So, I have some questions. I know you have questions, too. Yeah, yeah. Do you want, I mean, I have some, like, kind of spicy questions. Should we start with that? Damn, spicy? <laughs> We're qualified. You know like what? accountability questions. Let's like. just take a cold shower and start with the spice. Okay, here we go. So, my first question. <laughs> I feel like I'm about to get interrogated. Well, this is my accountability. This was like the things that jumped out to me. So, thanks for tuning into the Old Dirty Time Capsule. If you're watching this on YouTube and can't finish the episode, you can check out the full thing on our podcast feed. Link in the description below. If you want to help us create more conversations like this, don't forget to leave a like, a comment, a sub, and just share it with the homies. There's a couple slurs in the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a couple, (laughs) a bunch of slurs. Trigger warning for those of y'all who have that sensitivity. So um, can you really justify all of them? Can I justify all of them? No. Um, I hardly ever use this answer, but I think this is one of those things where it's it's more or less subjective. because I think, how do I put it? It depends on one's tolerance. Mm-hmm. And some people, I think, have a high tolerance for that, some of that yep. nasty shit. And they're going to be like, oh, this ain't bad. Mm-hmm. And some people are going to have a very low tolerance for yep. all the, 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 because there are a lot of, like, you know, um, there's a lot of homophobia. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of, like, um, you know what I'm saying? words that make people uncomfortable, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Um, yeah, for sure. I mean, I think another way to ask that question is, how did you go about deciding which words to use in general, right? Like, okay. how did you want to depict the men? Because, you know, you could have made the choice to, like, sanitize a lot of those experiences, 
or you could have chosen to write them the way that you've experienced them. And so how did you decide how did I decide how to depict some of the characters in the book? It, it had to it had to do, I think and this is important. I kept this. I kept it sanitized. I kept it sparingly mm -hmm. because I also wanted it to be dramatic. Mm -hmm. The moments where you do hear some of those slurs yeah. in the book, um, they're moments of like high intensity, yeah. and they're almost climactic, yeah. and they almost like crash down. Right. They like disperse that moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I think the moment I think about the most is in the barbershop scene where yeah. Jesus is talking about how he knows. How he knows he's not gay, mm -hmm, right? You mm -hmm. know what I'm saying? Yeah, because he should I ruin it? Because he gets. Uh, no, nah, don't say it. Don't say <laughs> it. Just read the book. It's a PG podcast. Um, and in that moment too, then there's a, there's there's a lot of laughter in the barbershop, Yo. but then there's a, there's this unsettling quiet mm -hmm. um, as well. And the thing about, for example, a character like Jesus, Yo. I intentionally named one of the most despicable and grotesque characters in the book, Jesus. Mm, you know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? That was one of my other questions, actually. Because um, it also had to do with, there's a lot of role reversals. Yeah. And I guess, too, when I think about the use of language, um, you want almost the, you, I almost want you to feel grossed out yeah. and disturbed mm -hmm. by um, uh, Jesus's use of the the, the f word. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, As I was, I was very disturbed. Because there's there's just this weird irony yeah. involved in it in the whole of the experience. Yeah. Um, so no, yeah, and I, I want you to to feel that way about him. I want you to get that shock. Um, and I would did it at first. Yeah. Because I have a very intense personality in yeah, general. Yeah. So I had to learn to build the suspense using the language. Mm. And something about that that type of shit is is dramatic and it, it shocks people. Yeah. Right. That's true. Yeah, I was gonna say, I think it's also like reflective of society. Like I think people be saying crazy shit. Am I allowed to swear? Mm-hmm. Okay, let me start over. I think people say a lot of crazy stuff all the time, especially in, in masculine spaces. And I'm not in a lot of hyper-masculine spaces, but I went to high school with like mostly guys and like being around them and witnessing them in their own space without them having to care about folks that were not men or were not boys. I think it is that ridiculous. You know what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, it is yeah. a reflection of that dynamic. And so, yeah, I, I, was, I was thinking about that. But on that name question, I can jump to a question that I have about names, which is, you were talking about how you named this like grotesque character Jesus, right? Very intentionally to sort of draw that um, that juxtaposition. How did you choose the rest of the names? Because they were very biblical, um, they were very hood. Some of them felt very Dominican, and some of them were metaphorical, like people who didn't have names or the boy. Mm -hmm. um, how did you decide who was worthy of what name? Fuck, that's crazy. Um, damn, I didn't expect that. <laughs> you weren't ready for that. I was ready for that one. <laughs> I mean. So, you had, I believe in telling the story through other stories. Yeah. So me drawing in biblical references and cultural references yeah. was me also telling more stories through this story, sure. right? Sure. Um, for example, you know, I think the most the most important one is so the boy. I, you, you haven't read the updated. He has a name now. Oh, he has a name. Yeah, yeah very briefly, very are, briefly. Are you gonna tell me his name or it's no? Ishmael. 
Ishmael. Right. So the thing about that is in the Bible, right? Ishmael is the abandoned son, mm-hmm. um, and then Abraham takes I- uh, is it Isaac. Yeah, yep. he takes up, Isaac. Up right. Um, sacrifice or whatnot. There's a lot of history, and originally, I think the book started with the characters themselves were were historical references. Yep. Right. So Ishmael also was originally Icarus. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's a lot of like Greek mythology as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and the idea is also about the personalities, right? Yeah. So think about Icarus as well as Ishmael in the Bible. Yeah. I guess you can both describe them as wild asses. Mm-hmm. And that's to say that they were crazy kind of dudes, right? Mm-hmm. They made bold choices and they, they, um, they lived life somewhat on, um, on an ambitious note sure. and on a hungrier note in yeah. a certain sense. Um, and with Icarus, you saw him perish. Mm-hmm. With Ishmael, um, we, I don't really know because at some point in, in time, he falls out of the Christian canon. Mm-hmm. Um, and apparently he falls into the, um, the Muslim canon. Interesting. Um, or the Middle Eastern canon, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of that has to do with Abraham promised, Abraham was promised mm-hmm. as many offspring as would fill yeah. the sky, right? As the stars in the sky. And that's what you got, mm-hmm. right? The Abrahamic religions. Right. So again, there's that descent. Damn, I'm rambling a little bit. But there's that generational yeah. stuff. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Um, most yeah. of, I think, the important characters' names come from prophets. Sure. So Emmanuel, Jeremiah, yeah. um, you know, Andres, San Andres. Yeah. Um, Salvador, yeah. which isn't really a prophet, but has that prophet vibe. Yeah, yeah. So Salvador yeah. was someone. Prophet light, maybe. But Salvador actually came from Salvador Dali. Okay. Um, and then so did, so did Pablo. Okay. You know what I'm saying? So you get that Salvador and Pablo dynamic in there, right? Sure. That 20th century artist. Um, yeah. You know what I'm saying? You got Samson, um, just from the Lila story with the hair mm-hmm, and shit, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, yeah, and then you have like, um, is it Supreme? Supreme love. Supreme love, eternal. Eternal freedom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's more of like a Muslim sort of like five percenter. I'm assuming. Five percenter, five percenter. Yeah, yeah. Right? You know, so mm-hmm. there's also that vibe to it. No, yeah. Um, and then even the title of the book, though, "Twice Upon a Time There Was a Boy Who Died." That's a hip hop reference. Mm-hmm. That's an Andre 3000 reference. Mm-hmm. Um, the whole book is very referential. Yeah. Um, and it's it, there's a whole bunch of of that going on. Yeah. And. You know that book, Steal Like an Artist? Yeah. I never read that book, but, but I, 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 assume, could, yeah. I understood the title. It's interesting because when I was reading it, like we've talked about like sort of growing up Christian and I grew up very Christian, so I'm very aware of the biblical canon. I don't necessarily like consider myself a Christian anymore, but I'm very aware of it. And so when I read about allusions to the Bible, I feel like part of me as a child is being seen because this is like, I studied this as a kid. Like mm-hmm. I used to do like, I'm gonna read the whole Bible challenge and like I would preach with my dad and all these things. And so like a lot of these illusions, even though I know the context is different and it and obviously also speaks to my life as a Lawrence person and whatever, yeah. the hood person, the immigrant person. But a lot of the biblical illusions, like they tie something together for me with that. I don't think that I would run into mm-hmm. um, in this particular context, you know. I find the religious um, symbolism is really potent and I think it strikes at something really critical to our psychology mm. because the reason the biblical stories have remained so potent yeah. is again because they, they tie to like um, like Carl Jung, and I mean, I get it from Jordan Peterson, but he, he gets it from Carl Jung, yeah. is the idea of like the archetypes right. and the, the, um, 
essentially like our, our, our brain is able to create like um, like almost like representation single right. singular representations of entire um, people you yeah, know what I'm saying because sure. um, it's like how you put it a- anybody can be Abraham yeah anybody can be Isaac and yeah. anybody can be um, Ishmael yeah in the sense where anybody can essentially come up with this deal with God mm-hmm. oh fuck why well, do I put that in air quotes um, this deal, that's what I meant to put in air quotes. Um, <laughs> okay, edit that out. Not the God part, you know what I mean? The yeah. deal part, right? Yeah. Um, and in some sense, that's a promise to, even if you don't believe in God, I think it's very reasonable to assume that Abraham made a promise to the future. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? He made a promise with some some outcome or some some power larger than him, sure. right? Whether he was actually communing with that thing, where the angels came to him yeah. and told him, yo, kill your kid, mm-hmm. um, is a different story. But it's like we all come to that point where something in life asks us yeah. to, to make a compromise for the future. Yeah. When we're writing books, you know the expression, kill your babies? Yeah, kill your darlings. Yeah. That's essentially Abraham and Isaac. Killing Isaac, interesting. You know what I mean? So um, can I ask you, what is? what do you feel like? Do you feel like that book is the sacrifice for you? Or do you feel like you had a moment prior in which you had to sacrifice something for that future, that negotiation you had with God or whatever? I don't know if that's too deep, but. I don't know if this was necessarily a sacrifice. Yeah. Or if I was just always this way. Yeah. You know, no, no um, how do I put it? I, I finished the book when I was in Oxford. Yeah. Um, in 2022. Yeah. Um, and it was during this month off. I had five weeks off. Yeah. All my peers. Yeah. Went out to go vacation mm-hmm. across Europe. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And I stayed my ass down and I wrote this book. Wow. That gives me a lot of hope. Yeah, but it was also is to say that that was somewhat the sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I still look back on it like, damn, yo. Maybe I should have traveled, traveled Europe. Yeah, lived that life, yeah. But I got the book done, you know what I mean? That's and awesome. I have no regrets about that, actually. Yeah, it's interesting, too, because also I think the tension of being a writer is writers sort of live in this imagined world where we're writing and we're overthinking, where we're finding ideas that exist in like this other place instead of being present. And so that does feel like a sacrifice, where you chose this thing that will outlive you, right? But you miss this moment that was like right there. You know? Yeah, yeah. You know? I think something else I sacrificed a little bit. Yeah. And I think it was you who actually first um, most aware of it mm-hmm. because you had that um, that problem with truth going on in your work and just yep. being able to speak yeah. in in the, the knowing of security, mm. right? Because something I read recently was when an author publishes, their family dies. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> You, you know what I'm talking I about? I understand. That's like a very potent way of naming something I've been feeling for a very long time. And... Yeah. It's a, it, every character is an amalgamation of right. different people in my life. Right. You know what I'm saying? Because I have people profiles. Yeah. Because I notice, I'm like, oh, there's, there's only so many kinds of personalities and people, right. despite the fact that people have their own unique histories. Right. You know what I'm saying? They could all have more or less traceable and trackable tendencies. Right. You know what I'm saying? And those are the things that you compile or that I compile into right. a character. Interesting. You know what I'm saying? Um, but okay. yeah. Cool. I mean, that goes back to the conversation we're having about Bakhtin 
and the sort of like community influ like influencing your characters. How was that, by the way, the Bakhtin reading? Uh, it was intense. It was really intense. We don't have to talk about it. It's really, really like niche and whatever. Okay, you know I mean? okay. We don't have to talk about it now. We can talk about it later. But can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, this is actually, I have a question about it. Well, I eventually do want to get back to the Bakhtin because you actually read it. I haven't. I've been short to you. I have, I have the book at home. I've only had the theories like summarized to me. It's like a huge, like thick book. You want to let me borrow that? Yeah, I mean, if you want, I read most of it. So, anyway, the question was. Okay. <laughs> how did you come up with all these vignettes? Right. So they feel like dreams to me when I read them. They feel very like stream of consciousness in some ways, very specific, but also detachable. Mm -hmm. um, and my question was, like, do you think they could function on their own? But I also think that part of the reason why I bring up Bakhtin and I bring up sort of like Russian literature in general is something that mm -hmm. Daniel had mentioned before I went to school this summer and then I read about this summer was um, this idea of not privileging one particular voice in a story, right? And I think this is the part where I think people can't anticipate this necessarily in the text, where I think when we read novels, we expect it to be like one person's point of view. It follows that person, that person grows, that person makes good choices, bad choices. At the end, you're like, oh, this is this one person's story. Everybody else is kind of a side character. Where this one, I feel like there's so many different voices and I don't think you really prioritize any one of them. Like, mm -hmm. I don't particularly, you might have, like, you might have one person that you're like, this is me, or this is the person that I want to be the protagonist. But I didn't feel that. And I think that works really well with the text because you're not saying that there is really any one way to be a man. I think that's why it functions as an intervention to the conversation because you're not telling us which one is right. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, my question goes back to, um, what would happen if you separated the vignettes, right? Like, what happens if you had just the vignette about Jesus? Does that become problematic when it's not countered with, like, a Jeremiah or the boy or, you know what I'm saying? No, no, I, I, think, I think that's true. Um, because I think what I, I, a big goal of mine was yeah. context. Okay. Um, and, for example, like, you're going to hate Jesus if you don't read the, the last part of um, the barbershop story, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. Because he's only being so flagrant mm -hmm. in the middle part. Right. But at the end, you realize that, like, this dude has a background and a history, and mm -hmm. there was a lot of pain that went into him becoming this kind of individual. Yeah. Um, and so, no, I mean, what was the question again? The question is, do you think these vignettes can function on their own? Or do they have to be part of this, like, you know, text. They can function on their own, but yeah. they lose their me they they lose the they lose their meaning mm -hmm. um, when they're not together. Interesting. Because I believe in that sort of like uh, Russian nesting doll theory, mm -hmm. where you know every piece of language is really just an evolution on mm -hmm. a smaller piece. Mm -hmm. So you know, um, you go from a letter to a word, from yeah. a word to a sentence, right. from a sentence to a paragraph, from yeah. a paragraph to a book. Um, and the thing is, is that um, just the way that the, the, the sound of a letter changes when yeah. you put it around different letters is the same way that um, the meaning of a, of a sentence or a paragraph right. can change right. when you put it in the context of different, right. of different sentences and sure. stuff like it that. It dramatically right? changes, yeah. Yeah, exactly, sure. exactly. Um, it's almost like composition, like light composition yep. in, um, in photography. 
Uh, not that I know much. I've just yeah. been around Mav too much lately. <laughs> Shout out Mav. Nah, for real. Um, he set this whole thing up, so. So yeah, but you know, if you move the light one way, it just changes the, right. the drama. Yeah, of it. it changes the outcome. And like, I mean, that's the whole thing about like, um, I, I think it was Virgil Abloh who's like, you don't have to change the whole piece. The you 3% have, Yeah, you just have to change a little bit for you to have a brand new like piece, right? Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, no, anyway, the point, I think the vignettes are so powerful and I, I loved reading them and I think I was so taken by each one. I think together they tell a more complete story that in itself isn't making any particular claim, mm -hmm. which I like. Um, but I do think that even as pieces, like I think about as a teacher looking for short stories, looking for poems, looking for manifestos or soliloquies, this is a, a text where you can sort of pull those and not have to teach the entire text. You feel me? Oh, damn, that's you a good point. Do you consent to that? <laughs> I do, um, slightly. Yeah. So long as there's an asterisk by every lesson. Yeah, no, I'm not for my <laughs> students, but oh, maybe for adults. <laughs> um, because it's just to say that like, I, I think and I hope mm -hmm. that at least individually, each vignette um, provides insight yeah. into into something, yeah. whether it be the actual concept being yeah. tackled in the sure. vignette, or just the the language and the uh, language method used sure. to display it. Yeah. Um, because by God, do I think I'm nice with my pen? Um, I'm gonna be real. I just I, I sometimes I read my sentences and I'm like, damn, bro, yeah, you wrote I that. that. I feel that it's very because um, I feel like that's really what I took away from it because you know, men understanding men is yeah you know maybe for another day, <laughs> but the words themselves were so compelling that I was like, wow, men are really people. <laughs> men really suffer. That's crazy. But um, I think the words, good. because it wasn't just like, first of all, I mean, obviously as a writer, I'm, I'm in love with words. I'm obsessed with words. You can very easily manipulate me with words, right? Which obviously I've been manipulated here in this context. But I also, I think there's a spiritual depth to the words. And I think this is what I'm curious about, right? Because I think there's a spiritual depth in the words that you can't just write out of nowhere. And I think maybe this is my interrogation of you as a writer is like, where's that coming from? Like, what have you seen, bro? What have you lived through <laughs> for you to be having that insight? Because there's some lines I'm like, bro, for you to have this one line in this book, I forget the whole book. For you to have this one line, you must have gone through some shit. And I hope, A, I hope you're okay. No, I'm fine. I just had a flashback. And B, <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm good. It's triggering. But it's also just like, it, it just carries so much depth and weight that it's not, it doesn't just feel like words. It feels like experiences that are being consolidated. Can you speak to that? <laughs> no, yeah, I gotta, I gotta process. We'll get you. Much. Just, um, you did, you did. It's too much. I need a. That's what I was saying the other day. I was like, I can't read this in public. It's too much. I'm like triggered. You know. Cool, cool, cool. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I just had to. I had to sit on that. Okay. So to rephrase the question back at you. Yeah. Um, where was the inspiration for the language in this novel? Yeah. Um, and particularly, how did I manage to cut? to the core of certain things yeah. in such ways. Sure. Um, mental illness. Right, um, trauma. That's what I for you to say, trauma. <laughs> um, no, no, Damn. no, no, it's not, no. 
Okay. Yes, but no. Right. Um, you have to work hard. Because it's also the willpower to overcome one's own mm-hmm. um, experiences, yeah. right? You don't make good art unless you're also willing. You don't. The victory at the end of a good art piece is the death of a demon mm. in your life. Um, we can just end the interview there. I'm just, I'm gonna go home because I feel like that's what I need to hear. Working on my novel is like, oh, this demon will die when you finish this book. Is that how you feel? Hell yeah. Yeah. Are you um, free now? Do you feel free? Yeah, because even this is the crazy thing is that even now with this freedom, I look back and I'm like, damn, I was really feeling those ways, thinking those mm, things. Mm-hmm. Well, I was even telling myself earlier today, if I could go back and rewrite the book, knowing what I know now, I'd write it differently. Mm-hmm. But it's like I also wouldn't have. Um, I guess killed what I needed to kill mm-hmm. if I had written it differently, right. or if I hadn't gone through that experience. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, it's to the question of the language, right? Um, and I guess what some of those demons are. You know, I, I do. I have had a um, an experience, a lot of experiences with like just uh, uh, violence, violence. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Um, and I think most importantly, too, is just solitude. Mm-hmm. And, a, and not even solitude, because I think solitude is peaceful. Mm-hmm. I think abandonment is traumatic. Mm-hmm. And loneliness mm-hmm. is painful. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's just ha- having seen certain things, it makes you want to isolate. Yeah. And it makes you want to be alone. And then that loneliness is... Um, it's cyclical and it doubles on you yeah. where you isolate and you're lonely yeah. and then you want to be with people, mm-hmm. but then you're lonely because you're not, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then you have shame because of it and the shame grows and it eats you and then you get more lonely. And, yeah. and I think in those, those cycles, what I have encountered that has allowed me to really think about this is also is just almost like, um, you know, those really existential questions and those those really those really questions that have to do with death mm. and dying and mortality. Yeah. And I remember one of the most important questions I had on my mind between the ages of 16 to 19 was, yeah. um, what kind of life if I'm going to leave here on this planet mm-hmm. after I die? Yeah. Um, how will I be remembered? Um, and I remember being in such a panic yeah. Because, and I guess this is part of what I was getting out through this book. It was a fear of death yeah. um, that I was trying to get rid of. I don't think I've really gotten rid of it, but I've gotten rid of almost the um, the impatience mm-hmm. and the anxiety mm-hmm. that come with a fear of dying. Sure. Sure. You know, because um, when I was younger, I was just like, I'm, I was moving like I was going to die tomorrow mm-hmm. and I had to get it all done mm-hmm. in 24 hours. Yeah. You know what I'm trying to say? So yeah, yeah. those were really the emotions, I think, that drove the content of the book. Interesting. Because along with the fear of death also comes the pursuit of meaning. Mm-hmm. Okay. I figured out once I felt like once I figured out what my meaning in life is. Yeah suddenly it became much easier to accept the possibility of death. Mm. You know what I mean? Um, Interesting. That, those are the emotions that went into the book. Interesting. And those are the questions and experiences and the struggles yeah. um, that had to go into the book. Because I, I just think about some of my favorite moments are when characters are looking up at the sky mm-hmm. and they're just like, why? Mm-hmm. Yeah, per- but, very profound. 
And I think also when characters are by themselves, I think you get to see them in this pure way that you don't see them when like they're in the barbershop with like their homies or other men watching them, right? Like what are men like when they're alone versus what are men like when they're being, when they're performing masculinity? And yeah. I think that's when you see that loneliness come in. I think also you could talk about like what happens when men are with women or men are with the people that they love. Or do they become different than when they're alone or they're with other men? Um, yeah, for sure. I, I could see a lot of that existential thought. Mm -hmm. Cause yes, sometimes there is that performance yeah. aspect, but like when you with your homies, yeah. like you're not, there's no girl, girls around, your parents not around, no. the, the the cops not around, your no. teachers not around. Yeah. Um, and there's just something about ridiculousness mm -hmm. and the absurd behavior yeah. um, that just makes you feel like you're not alone in life. Right. And I think that's something I really wanted to get across in the book was just the importance of brotherhood yeah. and having your homies yeah. and, and looking to your homies. Mm -hmm. Because I think, you know, we live in an era where um, see a lot of men are, are, are angry at women. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, they don't owe you nothing, bro. Mm -hmm. Worry about you. Worry about getting good friends. Because mm -hmm. this is what, like once you once you have good friends. You don't need any of that other shit. That's true. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to ask on that on that front, personally speaking, in your life, um, what was it like? You are talking about these cycles of loneliness, right? I think something that I struggled with was um, my life dramatically shifting, me becoming this sort of different person, having these existential questions, feeling lonely, wanting companionship, wanting friends, wanting community, mm -hmm. not knowing how to ask for it, not knowing how to build up to it, right? Yeah, and yeah. so did you have that moment where you were like, I feel really abandoned, I feel really isolated, I want friends, I know that's what's gonna keep me accountable, what's gonna help me grow, but I don't know how to get there. Or like, you know what I'm saying, maybe it's awkward to ask, or maybe I've broken these bridges, or I've burned these relationships. Like, how did you find your way back to these communities after being like feeling abandoned and lonely? Sorry, it's like therapy, it's like a lot. No, 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 no. Yeah, I'll, I'll start with this, you know, I think one, this is one of the easiest kinds of loneliness it is for me to talk about publicly, mm. but it's like, I'm a white Dominican. Mm. Um, and mm. I grew up with actually um, a, a family of mostly black and brown Dominicans, mm -hmm. um, because I grew up mostly with my father's side, right? Because mm -hmm. um, I'm, I guess, textbook definition mixed race. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the first, not one of the first experiences, of, I don't wanna talk about that on camera. Mm -hmm. Experiences I've had with loneliness, where like, for example, my cousins ostracizing me for being white skin mm -hmm. amongst a crowd full of like, you know, um, people who look more like you perhaps, yeah. right? Um, and so that's one of the moments of being socially outcasted. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Um, and I think in that moment too, a lot of that loneliness, it has to deal with, and a lot of the, the um, cause I think getting out of the loneliness often requires getting out of one's stubbornness mm -hmm. and getting out of one's own way. Yeah. Unless you're suffering from like severe, severe depression. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? But sometimes, it, some people don't have, in my opinion, they don't, they're not mentally ill or unwell. Yeah. They have a philosophical problem. They have mm -hmm. a perspective outlook mm -hmm. that is harming them. Yeah. And, it is, and that becomes a cycle which eventually becomes depression. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Because you're thinking negatively for over 10, 15 years. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know what I'm saying? Um, for example, like, I'm trying to think. 
I had to stop thinking people owed me something. Mm-hmm. I had to stop thinking people owed me friendship. Mm-hmm. You get what I'm saying? Yeah. I had to stop thinking my cousins owed me kindness. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? I had to take it upon myself to 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 be myself mm-hmm. and to accept myself yeah. and to love myself. Right. Because at the end of the day, I, I'm not gonna change my skin color. Right. And I know that my cousins are my blood. Right. It don't matter if they're a different complexion than me. Um, regardless of perhaps whatever like they might think it's funny. They might even themselves be a little, um, have their own experiences with white people yep. that they're taking out on me, right? And right. this is when we were younger kids, right? I don't know what the fuck is going on. Because now, as a grown man, when I see my cousins, bro, they're hugging me. They're, lo- they're, they're mm-hmm. giving me love. They're, yeah. um, because when we're kids, we're just going through so many different emotions. Yeah. And I feel like as adults, the adults are still the, the adults that are still kids are the adults that haven't worked through those emotions. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Um, yeah. And I had to you got to work on yourself at the end of the day and stop mm-hmm. I had to stop blaming people. Yeah. You know what I mean? I feel that it's definitely and I think a lot of people unfortunately and I don't know how it happened for you, maybe it was something that you chose or maybe it was like your loneliness forced you into that, but sometimes people don't have that break that forces them to change. You know what I'm saying? They don't get to that like rock bottom that forces them to change. It's always like so close. They're always in that pain and it becomes part of their lived experience that they build a personality to match the pain. Mm -hmm. And it never gets to a breaking point where they have that existential question. They never get to that sort of nihilistic phase and then they get stuck there. And you know what I'm saying? It's that's real. Sometimes it's, it's like, I don't know, I think about for myself, I'm like, sometimes I'm like, I'm lucky I went through these things because it really forced me to be, you know, existential yeah. in a way that I would not have advocated for for myself. But I will you say, I, I want to push back on that a little bit because yeah. although I think part of me says, yeah, when yeah. you're right. Um, but then there's another part of me that's like, part of that does feel wrong, mm. at least for some people. Um, because I also feel as though there's an ego problem with some individuals. Yeah. Um, in a control problem mm-hmm. where I feel like some people do hit rock bottom, mm. but it's it's an incessant need um, to be right or right. to to have control. Sure. And it like continues the cycle. I don't know how you feel about yeah, that. Yeah, no, I mean, I think you have to have, like you have to know that you need to shift, right? If you don't know you need to shift, you're just gonna create the, you know, the journey and then hit rock bottom again. And which isn't to say that if you found the path, you're never gonna hit rock bottom. You could always hit rock bottom, right? But I think that you know, I always say to myself, like, if you feel a shift coming, you have to shift before it shifts you. You feel me? And I feel like a lot of times people get to that place and they see all the things that are wrong in their life and they like they don't get out of their own way, like you mm-hmm. were saying. And like a lot of people are not incentivized to really find out who they are. And to be fair, I think, you know, you're talking about you had this unique experience of being a white Dominican. I think um, I grew up being like a Kikuyu person in Lawrence. Like I couldn't rely on the dominant narrative to serve me. I had to find myself. You I me? literally hear you say the word like pero. Like all, like all the time. I hear you use Spanish lingo yeah. every now and then. I have like Dominican swag vibes sometimes. You do, you do. I do, but like I can't yeah. rely on that to be my identity. You feel no, me? Oh yeah. And at I, the end of the, you're not. It, it's not me and it doesn't serve me. Like I could, I could say pero all day and I do. But it, it doesn't, I will never feel seen the way that I would. I need to be seen yeah. or the way that I need to see myself. And so a lot of people, I think, I, I worry about people who do fit into dominant narratives because sometimes they don't have to ask who they are. 
You know what I'm saying? Me up right there. So, and because of that, I think some of us, you know, I think about, um, not to mention like a war criminal or anything, but I think about Obama a lot. <laughs> and um, I, I was reading his memoir. 2008 was a crazy year. 2008 was a wild year. And also, because he's Kenyan also, um, well, half Kenyan, I read a lot about his story. And if you read his memoir, um, the one that he just came out with, Not Dreams for My Father, he's someone who's very conflicted his entire life. And a lot of that has to do with him being mixed race and him being biracial and him being black and him just being like, I don't know what I'm doing, I'm searching for purpose. And my theory is that he became president thinking being president was gonna give him that purpose. Did it? I don't know. But for him, because his life was so weird, it was like, it doesn't matter if he's president because there's really nothing that is like set in stone for him as a person. I gotta ask you something. Yeah. Did you come up with that analysis like on your own? Did you read that somewhere? And, and oh, I mean, that was for me reading the book. Okay, yo, That's just how that I was crazy. Him. Cause I also want to go back to something you said though. Is there like um, being a part of the dominant um, cult culture? Yeah, actually keeps you from breaking out of your shell. Yeah. Where and the thing is, it, I wonder if the word dominant I think is is used correctly, and mm -hmm. I, I would want to use a different word in a different circumstance. Because sure. even being a marginalized group yeah. it can be being a part of a dominant sure, culture. Sure, sure. And so for, I think for both of us in this case, the dominant culture is like Dominican culture, yeah, every, right? Dominant meaning whatever's case, around you. Right, and I think that's also the dominant culture in the book, right? For a reference point, right? And so I think for both of us, even though we both grew up here, to whatever extent we grew up here, you weren't born here, were you? Nah, nah, nah. Where were you born? I was born in the Bronx. Okay. Um, I moved to Ohio. Yeah. Moved to the yard, uh -huh. and then I moved to here. Right, okay, so you weren't born here. I was born in Eldama Ravine. Nobody knows where that is, right? And so... Never heard of it. <laughs> and so there's something about not be, part, being part of a culture, but knowing that you're not 100% going to feel like you're part of that culture that sort of forces you to like find out who you are. And I think in a lot of ways, sometimes we, we do that earlier than other people, and so we end up establishing who we are or finding out processes to find out who we are sooner than folks who are like, feel like everything is going well until they're hit with that crisis of like, oh no, you're not. You yeah, until your identity shakes, man. Right. Um, I was with, um, I was, fuck, I guess I gotta say this. I was with my shorty <laughs> and um, she was mad if I don't say it. Um, and she was watching fucking like 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 not some like Love Island or yeah. like one of them yeah. them shows and there was this Puerto Rican girl and bro why every time she met somebody yeah and honestly even when she already knew them she was reminding them yeah. she was Puerto Rican hell yeah and I'm like no nah, I'm like I'm for it but at the same time it's like you gotta have other personality traits besides being Puerto Rican like yeah or be, like being where you're from it's interesting because I used to think about people who have like their their country's flag in their bio. Because I never really identified as a Kenyan. Like, also for me, I don't identify with nation states because nation states are sort of amorphous and have their own nefarious agendas that I don't necessarily identify with. And so for me to identify with the nation state was weird until I realized that putting a Kenyan flag in my bio indicates to other Africans that I am African. And so it serves me in that way. It, it does. You know what I'm saying? It, it, once you... I never like to personally. I always like to ignore the power structure, yeah, because it's it's useless when it comes to dealing with real people. Right, like the United States government is irrelevant to me yeah. when I'm dealing with um, the average voter. Yeah, actually, because. Right. 
the average voter and the United States government are not on the same page. Right. You know what I'm saying? Um, but me and the average voter, like, we have to deal with each other. Right. You know what I'm saying? Right. I will say, though, I think on the point of, like, you know, having your, where you're from be your identity. I think about this because I tell people I'm a Lawrence person all the time, right? And I recently had this crisis of, like, am I a Lawrence person? Um, for a really long time, I used to identify as undocumented. I think we talked about this last mm -hmm. time. And then I got my status, so I'm no longer undocumented. So I was like, oh, my God, who am I? Because that was my personality. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I was like, oh, my God, I have papers now. Like, my whole brand is gone. And so I had That's to That's funny. <laughs> so my whole brand, my paper, I don't the have paper. The bag is gone. I'm no longer getting these checks. But, um... I had to then look at myself like, what am I when I'm not undocumented? And yeah. that's when I went back into like me being Kikuyu and me being an indigenous person. And I had to look further than that because in America, I was just seen as an undocumented person or I'm just seen, I realized I was referring to myself as like always the negative thing. Like I am undocumented, I am queer, indicating like on the outskirts, I'm marginalized, I am, even black is a very like- You were constantly putting yourself, like you said, on the margins. Yeah, in the relationship to the power structure, I was never really identifying myself for myself. You know what I'm saying? Until I had the opportunity to do that, in which case I realized like, oh my God, I'm Kikuyu, what does that mean? I don't know, I grew up in Lawrence, we don't have a lot of that culture, so then I had to go look for it. And it wasn't until I got to that point that I was really able to be like, okay, this is who I am when I'm not trying to fit in with other people. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. And I think a lot of people um, sometimes don't have to do that until shit hit, like, goes down, you know? I wonder if some people ever have to do that at all. Right, exactly, and it, it makes you wonder, are they really living an authentic life if they never have to do that? And can we can we be the judges of that? Like Socrates says, yo, the unexamined life is not a life worth living, yo. You know what I'm saying? Um, I believe that a thousand percent. I wanna like, damn, hold on, I wanna sit on that for a second because I think that that's a real experience I have. Uh, like not me personally, but as I see it in the world, um, I see a lot of people thinking about what they're not. Yeah. A lot of people thinking about what they don't have right. um, and worrying about what the next person has and who they are. Yeah. Um, and the thing is, it's a, it's a deficit attitude. Yeah. And we have so many assets available to us all at any point in time, right? Mm -hmm. um, whether it be a great load, a great deal of us are blessed to have an able body. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Um, a great deal of us are blessed to live in a country that can provide resources for those who don't have, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. who are who are somewhat disabled, right? Yeah. There's a there's a moment in the book. There's a, there's a character I put in there. Speaking of role reversals, Riley Freeman. Mm -hmm. Riley, um, shout out to Riley from Boondocks. I'm assuming that's the reference. That's the reference, but I flipped it mm -hmm. yep. because now Riley Freeman in the book is a. Um, suburban mixed kid yeah. and he's the older brother now and not the younger brother mm -hmm. but you see him grappling with this um inability to find place in the world right. um and it eventually results in a very tragic ending right mm -hmm. but yeah 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 but and and i think that's why i had to write him the way i, I wrote yeah. him because only a mixed character yeah in my per, in my experience would have been able to experience the feelings mm -hmm. that the riley freeman of this book was able to experience interesting it's interesting that you say that too one thing that someone told me is oftentimes there's issues with representations in book right and there's <laughs> let me start that again 
oftentimes there are issues with representations in books, right? So if you write a particular book and you have one main character, let's say it's a story of your life, but if that main character is, let's say it's a mixed race person and they end up being super conflicted and that's their only trope, right, in the book, and that could be accurate to you, but that's the only way that they're represented, then it adds to this discourse of like, well, mixed people are always gonna be confused and like, it's cliche, da 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 right? And this could go for anybody. This could mm-hmm. go like, let's say I, I wrote a, um, a book about a black girl and she was angry, which is a real thing, right? It happens, it's a realistic thing, but if I only have one black girl and she's angry, then that feeds into this trope of like, black girls are angry, right? And so I think one thing I appreciate about the book and the vignettes like Mm -hmm. I was talking about is that yes Riley Freeman is mixed and yes Riley um, Freeman has this tragic end but it's not the only representation of someone of that identity in the book I'm assuming no 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 it's not Uh, there's another this one is very very subtle yeah but it's the racial dynamic between um, between Martin and Emmanuel Mm -hmm. so um, Martin and Emmanuel are half brothers oh wow um, however, Martin is of a darker complexion yep. and Emmanuel is of a lighter complexion. Mm-hmm. Um, and you see the older brother be aggressive mm-hmm. and, you know, get angry with the younger brother and you see him take out a lot of his resentment. And part of me, part, part of the racial symbolism for me also has to do, it's going to sound super corny. But if we were to, to set aside all race, you know, everybody's brother and sister, <laughs> right? I know that's super corny. That's but controversial. It's super controversial. <laughs> but like on a, on a biological, scientific level, sure. we, are, we are human animals. Especially since the aliens are here now. So I guess, yeah, 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 fine, fine, fine. But it's like scientifically, there's a reason why if you mix a, a, ligand, a, a lion with a tiger, yeah. they make a sterile baby. Yeah. Meaning a liger cannot reproduce. Right. because There's different species and whatnot. Right. Yeah. Well, human beings, we're not, we, there are no species, yeah. all the other human species are gone. We're yeah. the only human species around, right. right? So for me, also the racial symbolism and the racial struggle going back to the story of Cain and Abel, mm. which is really present in the book, because yeah. you see that tension between brothers, yeah. right? Cain yeah. is a figurative character sure. yeah. because the first murder ever was always going to be a murder between brothers. Yeah, right, because there's only two people, really. There was only two people, there's only one species. Right. Um, you know, I, I always like to say that like the first, um, the, the, the first idea of race was born out of the first idea of tribes mm. um, and, the, uh, and the battle for resources right. and the idea that human beings are, are different and therefore have to sure. battle for dominance yeah. rather than collaboration. Sure. You know what I'm saying? We compete with each other instead of against other animals. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, I don't know, it's weird. That, that, that's a bad way to put it, but <laughs> yeah, nah, nah. Um, yeah. I don't know if you know what I'm trying to say, man. I mean, we can talk about tribalism because tribalism is something that's very present in my country and we're all dark-skinned niggas, so, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, my parents were telling me some crazy stories about when I was born and, like, the amount of tribalism that was going on then. And anyway, we can talk about that another time, uh, but I do understand this idea of, like, you know, if it wasn't, even the idea of murder is this idea that you're killing someone who is like you, who you don't have power over, 
Exactly. You know what I'm saying? Otherwise, because like when we kill an animal, we're not calling it murder because we feel like we have some sort of dominion over that animal. Exactly. We you call know? we call homicide homicide because it's the 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 murder of another human. Yeah. Exactly. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So. Sure. Yeah. I have a. Let me see a couple more questions. Yeah. yeah. Um. So I'm curious about the narrator, right? And <laughs> I wanted to know: is it like is it you? Is it God? Is it omniscient? Is it the boy? Um, because I think a lot of the, the, the lines that I loved were coming from the narrator. Some of, the, some of it was dialogue, for sure. But a lot of it was coming from the narrator. It seemed to be reflective of the scene. But then because the scenes are changing between different people, there's someone telling this like universal story. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to know, like, what was your approach when you think about the narrator? So, man, the narrator happened on accident. Um, and then the narrator became their own character right. totally on accident. Yeah. And I think I got a lot of the advice for the narrator initially yeah. by my, my, my writing mentors. Sure. Shouts um, Dr. Bennett and Professor Esbeck um, for helping me see who was there because uh, and the narrator very much evolved from this very ambiguous character mm-hmm. to a very solid individual and set of individuals a pair specifically and so the the narrator is a person in the narrative themselves Mm -hmm. and i guess the best way to put it is that they are a ghost Mm -hmm. um i'll even just outright like say it because i feel like it's 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 gonna be really hard for people to get kind of but it's um which one the one who lives on the street the one yeah at at the end Uh the, the artist yes Wow. Because, and I rewrote it. You gotta release that after people read it. I know, I know. I'm gonna, we're gonna cut that part out. I'm gonna bleep the name, right? I'm gonna actually bleep all the names. Just bleep that whole section of us talking and it's just like, bleep, 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 bleep. Um, Read the book, read the book. So, yeah. Part of the rewrite was this became the best friend to the boy. Mm -hmm. And he was kind of always meant to be that. But I wasn't leaning into it yet. Right. And by leaning into it more, that's how the boy got a name. Mm-hmm. Because I'm like, no, so friend has to have a best. He has to have a name. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because that's how it starts. Actually, now that you say that, he's a, he is often a guilty narrator. Mm-hmm. Um, I like that. Because part of the process with the book is um, the the elimination of guilt, mm-hmm. where survivors' guilt specifically, right. where you got characters like Salvador, his best friend died, and he mm-hmm. wasn't there to help him. Mm-hmm. Um, you got characters like Emmanuel who mm-hmm. are making out the hood, mm-hmm. um, college, doing all the, the whatever the fuck while yeah. their best friends and their brothers right. are going to more or less um, remain in the same, um, you know, societal right. environment, right? Yeah. So he, he struggles to acknowledge, he doesn't acknowledge himself till the end, mm. till the very, very end. Yeah. And you're gonna have to read that part again. Mm-hmm. But that's when, and there's, there's also this big element. I love the concept of time. Mm-hmm. And one of my, my biggest inspirations is Alan Moore, mm-hmm. um, the author of Watchmen. Mm-hmm. And he has this, this, he gave me this idea when you open a comic book, mm-hmm. right, you can have the past, present, and future all on one page. Oh. So you can kind of contain all of reality mm-hmm. in them in those moments, right? In this really interesting and 
in a um, scientific way. Yeah. And so I try to do that with the whole book, mm-hmm. right? There's um, the last story, the the epilogue, right? Ends with it, the, it, it starts with the phrase, in a place where there's no space and time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then in the end, boy, they get up, body, yeah. and he becomes a young boy again. Mm. And he meets his friend who's a ghost who died yeah. all those years ago. Yeah. And they just honestly go back in time and they just travel the world again. Wow. You know what I'm saying? Let me read, let me read to you the go last. Go ahead, please. Because, Can I read along? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because we're also, we're also nearing the end. Okay. Of our time on the pond. <laughs> Salvador went to sleep and then he slept forever. He had seen hold Pablo. On, hold on, hold on. Where are you? Okay, last, last 242. 242. So you're going to have to edit that. Huh? You have to edit that so it's nice and smooth. Okay, okay, gotcha. <laughs> Go ahead. Salvador went to sleep and then he slept forever. He had seen Pablo and his family one last time and he was, sad, he was satisfied. Salvador rose again in the form of his youth. He smiled and saw Ishmael, his dear friend. We cried, we hugged, and we forgave one another one last time. Brothers became brothers again and together we journeyed through boundless time. We watched the lives of our ancestors and descendants unfold all at once. We watched the birth of the world and the end of it. We lived again and died again, and it was beautiful. Mm, I love that. And like that's that's sort of like that's the story structure right there. Mm-hmm. And that you can actually it's just the reset button. Yeah. For and sure. you just go back in time and you watch the whole thing over again. And I think the cool thing about it when I was reading it, I felt like also like um have you ever seen those like i don't know it's probably like a game video game concept but those episodes on like netflix netflix has these like weird shows where you get to choose your own ending i know you know what yeah, i'm saying yeah. or like goosebumps used to have it where it also feels that way where like you could end there you could start again you can also just pick any of the vignettes or any of the chapters pick it up there read it you can read it in weird orders and it could create like a different ending you know what i'm saying because there is that sort of like fluid movement through time um, and all these things are happening both at the same time and also in order, I mm-hmm. feel, you know? And so there's so much that you could play around with in that sense. Um, it does feel very timeless, which, yeah. I, which I love. Also, these images are adding to that, I'm noticing. Yeah, man, the, the artists in there really, really helped me like get some of the, the medical, metaphorical points across. Yeah. Um, yeah, man, it's it's pretty nuts. Um, in reality, the the whole conceptual undertaking is far too large, even for me to have understood or executed yeah. properly. Because yeah. there's so many flaws in that book, beyond just the freaking print, um, just the um, actual. Man, I'm not done, man, mm. because I need to do better on the next one. Because now I also understand more about the nature, or I feel like writing a book taught me more about the nature and structure of our own reality mm. and the way, uh, first of all, language um, really creates, controls, and gives us access to experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and And next, how I'm still really bothered and really trying to figure out um, a physics problem through creative writing. And that's the concept of time 
and trying to understand the nature and order of order yeah. and the way linear experience sure. um, can be dismantled and remantled. Sure. Yeah, and I and, think it's interesting that you're trying to do that consciously because I think trauma does that unconsciously or trauma does that in a negative way, right? Okay. Like trauma disrupts time in a lot of ways. Yeah. And so it's, it's weird that, you know, people are always searching for ways to like relive things or to move through time when in a lot of ways, you know, violence does that, trauma does that, um, and all these other heavy concepts that you're addressing in the, the text, they do kind of do that in, uh, is, you know, the virtue of their being, you know? Yeah, So yeah. I think that's a good uh, vehicle for the, the thing that you were trying to do with time. No, thank you, man. I think, and I guess too, we'll, we'll end on this note, but your, what I said on the podcast all those many months ago, Yeah. Um, the mind is a fourth dimensional object yeah. because it's the only thing we have available to us yeah. that can both travel backwards in time yeah. and go forward in time. Yeah, that's true. The forward part isn't necessarily accurate. Right. Um, but yeah, that's the power of, of memory and thought. Sure. Um, and that's the problem I'm still trying to solve when Geshi. Yeah. Um, well, you did a pretty good job. I think it's beautiful. And I think you're saying that you need to do better, but I think that first trial in which, because your mind created this because your mind probably doesn't work in this super linear way, right? And I think that natural sort of like rawness of your brain is the only way this book could have happened. Because I think when you try to write a book like this, it doesn't feel like this, mm -hmm. you know what I'm saying? And so I just want to say, you know, you should honor that. You should honor that as your, you know, first trial of a novel because it's, it's complicated in all the ways that makes you think more. I don't think it's a limiting at all, which mm -hmm. is a triumph. No, yo, that's all we got for today, folks. We literally maybe 